Oh, it's not like it used to be. <laughs> G'day and welcome to the Anarchist History of New Zealand podcast. This is the history of New Zealand through a libertarian anarchist lens, specifically that of Rick Giles. Please enjoy the ideas and let me know what you think. When the baby boomers were quite young, New Zealand was still very seriously minded. There had just been a world war. Part of the new broom that came to tidy that up was comic satire. It served as a human firmware, though not everyone had it installed. Not everyone wanted to have it installed. A leader, or the leader, in our radio satire were the comedy troupe known as the Goons, Spike Mulligan, Harry Seacombe, Peter Sellers. I don't know if there was a New Zealand equivalent or if our heavily regulated government radio would have allowed such a thing to go ahead. We do know that young boomers tuned in to the goons and loved it. We joined the story in 1942, a critical year for Britain with British generals slaving away at their autobiographies. While across the channel, the German high command were welding a master plan. Achtung, gentlemen! Be seated. We must have a halt and a vaux and go to war. <laughs> Our scientists have just invented a liquid that will win the war. This chemical, when applied to the tail of a military soldier shirt, is tasteless, colorless, and odorless. Oh, what good is that on the tail of a shirt? Hi. The moment the wearer sits down, the yeah. heat from his body causes the chemical to explode. <laughs> this way, the soldier will be neutralized. <laughs> It'll be worse than that. Fine, <laughs> wonderful, Speak English, you fool. There are no subtitles in the scene. Ah. Now then, this is my plan of attack. Looks like a nail. No, it's attack. <laughs> Thank you. Who said we shall have a sense for humor? Just about everybody, I think. Oberlein and Shep? Where? You will take ten men, each one carrying a spray gun full of the exploding shirt-tail fluid. You will be dropped the Leicester, and there you will gain entrance to the great British military shirt artillery. The rest is up to you. We shall call the plan Operation Burn Bomb. <laughs> the effect of this deadly plan was soon felt. Bravo! The first discovery was made at Whitehall, where they were working on their memoir. Halt! Now, gentlemen, be seated. Oh, oh, oh. oh quick, nurse, the screens! Nurse. <laughs> Portions of the charred shirt tails were soon at a military forensic laboratory, where they were forensic. That clip was called Tales of Men's Shirts, A Story of Down Under, first broadcast December 31, 1959, script by Spike Milligan. The theme of this episode of AHNZ Podcast is very similar to that goon skit. It is titled A Story of Down Under, and 
it's probably inspired by stories of 1930s New Zealand that the goons had heard. It's time to turn from the 1950s though, from fiction to 1930s historical fact. New Zealand's Prime Minister, George Forbes, visited Britain and met United Kingdom Prime Minister Ramsay MacDonald. But only one of these men had a plan unfolding to cause the trousers of their farming community to spontaneously explode. And that was our George. John Deem, Director of the Fields Division of the Department of Agriculture in the Forbes government, had, in this year, 1930, penned an article in the government's Journal of Agriculture. The state, in this way, began instructing New Zealand farmers to use sodium chlorate and calcium chlorate as spray-on weed killer. Even at this early stage, Deem pointed out that, quote, sodium chlorate is supposed to be easily inflammable when dry on clothing. Users are therefore advised to wash any clothes that may become saturated with this material during spraying operations before allowing them to dry. Sodium chlorate, while quite safe to handle, forms explosive mixtures with a number of other substances, for example, strong acids, sulfur and sugar. It should therefore always be used alone. Eager farmers flooded the ministry with interest and requests for more information so they could use this killer substance too. Unfortunately, weeds were not the only thing it killed. Explosive little crystals did indeed form on farmers' trousers, and all they needed to detonate was a match, or even friction, to ignite them. Some men had lucky escapes, some were badly hurt, and some were even burned to death by their flaming trousers. Why does the anarchist history of New Zealand leap to blaming these injuries and deaths on the government? because it saves time. In terms of New Zealand's history clock, we're at this time drawing to the close of what AHNZ identifies as the 20-year Great Slump Fourth Turning and the five-year Friendly Road Victimhood Culture. In a fourth turning, a crisis time, the culture demands aggressive institutions and strong new uses for public authority over the public. As James Watson, the Massey University historian who uncovered the exploding trousers story in the first place, observes New Zealanders during this time looked to the state to tell them what to do. Watson also remarks that Kiwi farmers of 1926 wanted to adopt top dressing technology but were held back until the 1940s because they wouldn't make a move without a government permission slip. Likewise, the victimhood culture of the times provides double the reason for this attitude. The main means for victimhood culture mainstream, or any individual member thereof, to achieve their goals are to seduce or tantrum or finger wag until someone else provides the desired value. Quote from Watson, 
Not a lot of rugged individualism was evident there, except perhaps in a certain disrespect for authority, the very authority to which the request was directed. New Zealanders put their trousers in the government's hands, and, as always, politicians and bureaucrats gladly gathered up that corrupt power unto themselves, and rent our tweeds asunder. Ragwort, it's about time it was mentioned, was the public enemy all this trouble was done for the sake of. This weed kills horses and cows and had been a danger for generations. Poisoning due to ragwort in Winton, Southland, had killed large amounts of stock, which led to the scourge being called Winton disease. According to Watson, it was New Zealand's new emphasis on dairy that made matters worse, especially after refrigerated shipping allowed exports. As New Zealand's fame for butter rose, so did ragwort. When we had mixed farming involving sheep, the weed was taken care of by our woolly weed killers. Watson also points out that the government's labour market controls in the form of the centralised arbitration court prevented the use of paid men to kill the weed. Also, government compulsory schools robbed farms of their children who would otherwise work hard on their family farm and be available for weed control. Stripped of these means, New Zealand farmers were under assault by ragwort and sought a capital-orientated solution in the form of the poison recommended and permitted by Deem's department. As if any further evidence were needed as to why the state was responsible, I think I found something else. In 1902, Matara settlers were up in arms that a large block of non-Maori land was being given to Maoris to cultivate. The Bay of Plenty farmers were concerned that, as so often occurs to this day, the Maoris would greedily take the land but never work it. Instead, they would let it go to wasteland and it would become a, quote, hunting ground. One of the Maoris replied, insisting that, quote, I beg to assure you that the Ngāti Ranga Tihi tribe, whose land was all destroyed by the Tarawera eruption, fully intend to occupy and cultivate the 2,000 acres, which have only just been given to them in compliance with a district promise made over 15 years ago, unquote. It's true that the Tarawera Maoris were exploited by the government, then cut loose as refugees in 1886. However, unless I've got my land blocks mixed up, it looks like the settlers' fears were realised. In Watson's article, he quotes a detailed science officer report from 1937, observing, quote, It is difficult to understand that it was ever thought worth developing, but since it was, it is very unfortunate that it is now almost abandoned, as it is simply a propagating bed for ragwort at present, unquote. It seems that the government's belated amends for abandoning the Tarawera tourist Maori by trying to make farmers of them had instead created a man-made ragwort plantation. The story of the 1930s New Zealand exploding farmer pants has been retold many times since Watson first broke the story. Mythbusters in 2006 even tried to replicate the situation. In my opinion, it wasn't pants catching fire like paper. I think it was more like a sparkler going off and a cascade effect, which is why I've dressed George Forbes up as he is in the podcast image. Unlike other sources, AHNZ knows who wore the pants in this situation and that the responsibility belongs to Forbes and Deem. On the other hand, politicians are going to politic 
and bureaucrats are going to succumb to occupational psychosis. Ultimately, New Zealanders are themselves to blame for being seduced by statism. The cure for that, of course, is libertarian anarchism, which is what this podcast is here to provide. Postscript. It was up for debate entirely that the exploding government pesticide even killed weeds at all. That's the end of this episode of the Anarchist History of New Zealand podcast. Thanks for listening. Please let me know what you thought and visit the AHNZ website. The next episode will take us to 1880 and here's a small sample of that show to end this one. The deaf mute in his natural state is virtually nothing more nor less than a human plant. The work of the Sumner Institute consists in the development of these plants into human beings. Christchurch Press, 1905.